Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Traction Pieces Podcast, episode 424, and I'm joined this week by Mark Gatiss, who I was hugely excited to talk about. I'm a big fan of Mark. He's just done so much good stuff, hasn't he? Obviously, you guys will all be well aware of his body of work. So yeah, hugely excited to talk to Mark. Um, And we're going to get almost straight into it. Before we do, I should give um, a strong language warning because we discuss the current political state and stuff gets heated. (laughs) And in fact, I'm going to give you that strong language warning now for the immediate future, because I'm also going to tell you that on Friday, I've got a bonus episode with a comedian and singer called Cunt and the Gang. That's with a K. And he's got, he, he got to number five last year in the UK charts at Christmas with his song, Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt. I said there was a strong language warning. And he's back this year with, with Boris Johnson is still a fuck. You get the idea. I'm not going to, there's obviously there's going to be a lot of language in that episode. So I'm not going to overdo it here, but I thought I'd let you know in case you were into that kind of thing and give you the warning. Obviously as Christmas is coming, com is my web store. You can get all sorts of podcast merch, Scroobius Pip merch, records, winter stuff, all sorts of goodness there. So head over there if you want to support the podcast. That'll be hugely appreciated. Let's just get into the podcast, eh? Um, we've got a lot to talk about. This is episode 424 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Mark Gatiss. I'm here today with Mark Gatis. How are you, sir? It's Gatis. You must start again. Gates, I apologise, Mark <laughs> Gatis. How are you, other than, than my mispronunciation of your name? I'm all right. I'm, uh, I'm running on petrol fumes and fury at the moment at the state of, of Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw your, your... I read an interview with you a little while back about struggling to be proud to be... English of late and I thought with all that's going on on this morning I should r- reveal that we're recording this in the midst of much uproar over over a Christmas party that um sh- shouldn't have been how do you how do you find all of these things I, I, it's it's difficult to know what to say isn't it because it's it's so cloaked in parliamentary language everyone mm. knows he is a, a serial liar. He lies mm. as easily as he breathes. The idea that he didn't know that there was a party going on in his own house. Yeah. <laughs> and now what he's just done is thrown his entire staff under the bus. And you can't do that forever because you run out of staff. And also people, he's just, if I may use the word advisedly, a massive cunt. He he, he truly is. And I think you're right on the throwing <laughs> the staff under the bus. The thing that worries me is that we as the British public call for people to be sacked when the reality is we need to get rid of this government, we need to vote them out. And my worry is that if people are sacked and replaced, the anger that the public are feeling at the moment will be in some way placated 
come future elections and go, oh, oh, we got rid of the bad ones. Like, they're I, all the same. It's there. I, I totally agree. I mean, that's what Johnson has done brilliantly. That He managed to make it look as if the Tories hadn't been in power for 12 years. Yeah. It made it look like a change of government. That's The danger is Sunak probably would look like a very sober alternative and people go, oh, it's okay. You can see it happening now. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's so depressing. It's so depressing. It kind of amazes me that Boris has lasted as long as he has not from not being sacked but from not walking away himself it felt when he came in it was kind of a we'll do this for a bit and then when it gets a bit much i'll i'll move on but it is through his presented buffoonery i guess that he manages to just move on and on as if it's all a lot of jolly old fun my surprise is that he's not got more bored. I mean, it's, the thing is, it's clear it's a very, very hard job, even for someone as incredibly lazy as him. And and I thought he might have just gone because what he's done is he's he's beaten David Cameron. It's literally all that's all it's about. Yeah. He 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 got a, he got a biggest majority, the biggest majority the Tories have had since Thatcher. Therefore, his place in history, as far as he's concerned, is assured. I'm amazed he's stayed this long and not just gone back to writing stupid, lucrative articles and being a cunt. <laughs> Performing his role perfectly, if anything. Um, I, of course, want to talk to you about the amazing Mr Blunden, available on Christmas Eve on Sky Max and streaming on uh, now. But there's, there's loads of other stuff I want to talk about as well, politics and uh, the state of our country aside. But the perfect point seems to be a show that we did together. We didn't have any scenes together, so you don't have to panic and go, I don't remember this guy <laughs> at all. How awkward is this going to be? But uh, Taboo was was oh, yeah. a show that I was I was part of. And I was, although we didn't have any scenes, I was extremely excited to see your name on the on the call sheet on one of the days because I'm a fan of your of your body of work, despite my inability to pronounce your name. <laughs> um so like how did you find that as a as a show? What drew you to it? What was the appeal? How was it for you? Well, I, it was my third king. Or in fact, he was Prince Regent then, wasn't he? So yeah. nearly king. That was very attractive. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked the idea and, and the script was great fun. And also it's a very underdone period that it's not, you know, things tend to be, most period stuff is sort of Victorian and, and going back a bit further into the Regency and the the, the clothes are beautiful. And it was some great murky, weird, it was a weird story, I thought. It was like, it's basically like a gothic horror story without yeah. any without any supernatural elements. Yeah, I, I wondered if the kind of, the horror element would appeal. And I, I know when I got the scripts, the thing that appealed was, number one, completely right, it's a very kind of untrodden ground or lightly trodden ground, but it was the fact that there was a willingness in the scripts to really get grimy and dirty with it and discuss the fact that all the opulence that you've seen in so much traditional British period drama Mm. is built on the blood of slaves and all this kind of which wasn't really covered previously or or haven't seen covered much in British period type BBC stuff. The the East India Company stuff was really fascinating and the fact that they were this kind of basically like a sort of corporation now they're like the sort of evil apple uh, aren't yeah. they? And, and, uh, and it's extraordinary the power they had. I thought it was great fun. I mean, the only thing, the, the best thing for me was all my stuff was with Jason Watkins, who I absolutely love. But, yeah. but it was, there was a, I got, I got a, a text from, um, from a friend of mine saying, I won't know who's, he was quite large. And he said, why weren't they just cast a fat man? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
him. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was quite, it was very uncomfortable. I have to say it wasn't, um, I've, I've done yeah. a lot of fat suit stuff and prosthetic stuff, but it was, it was genuinely, maybe I don't know what time of year we shot it, but it was really quite uncomfortable, all that stuff. And there, there was a point, I remember there was one tiny little scene where I had to sit in the bedroom waiting for, for, um, for a decision from the prime minister or something. And, and my the combination of my teeth and all the stuff and yeah. uh, I was just like, oh fuck, I want to go home. I it's just it was like I felt like I felt if this is what George the Fourth felt like, no wonder he yeah. died early. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a glamorous uh, yeah. j- j- job to get. But you're completely right as well. The fact I learned so much about all the East India Duck Company it, it, yeah. it, through that, through the fact that they were your character of a monarch was essentially in their pocket and kind of at point at most of your story was kind of in conflict with them as much as it was in conflict with yeah, yeah. those rising up, which was Absolutely. fascinating. But I, mm. I completely relate as well. Every time I see, um, there's a lot of like medieval stuff at the moment. And every time I see a clearly fake beard, I'm sitting there going, look, I could have done that. I've got, <laughs> I would have brought my own beard. We would have saved an hour or two in hair and makeup. But, and I did uh, Wolf Hall uh, <laughs> a few years ago. It was the great thing for them was it, the shooting for once coincided with men's fashion being very, very Tudor. Yeah. So yeah. They, they, I, I think they just didn't have to have fake beards because there were so many sort of hipster beards going on yeah. that actually people actually looked like they were from about 1560. You know, it was... Uh, it was I think funny. I think that with Peaky Blinders is when Peaky Blinders started, it felt like there was a big hair and makeup job. And then a few years into it, it's like yes. everyone's got that haircut now. So well, you, you're because, probably just getting to walk on set and go, yeah. there you go. Because of Peaky Blinders though, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, yeah that, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It influenced it completely. Well, um, I mean... The re-approaching and taking darker approaches and stuff on on a story like that, something that you've always kind of been seemingly intrigued by and certainly excelled at is is reinventing or reapproaching iconic stories. The 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 easy first example is being Sh- Sherlock, and again we'll g- 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 get onto it with Mister Blunden, but. How was it initially taking on such, a, or how is it taking on such huge characters and pieces of literary history, um, and going, all right, well, let's let's make it new, let's 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 have a go at it. To be honest, it ne- it never. This, I don't want to sound sort of complacent about this, but it never bothers me that because the thing is, if if the property or the character is that is robust enough to have survived, then it doesn't really matter what you throw at it. Yeah, because it's not. I, I mean, I've I've seen a couple of people saying, "What? Why are you remaking the Amazing Mr. Blunder?" Well, come on to that. But the thing is, it's an. No one's burn, going to burn the, the original negative. Yeah, and if if you don't like it, then that's fine. But you you know, it's there's. I I don't like that kind of closed mindedness, and uh, particularly with great iconic things like Dracula or Sherlock Holmes, which have been reinterpreted so many times yeah it's it's not the end of the world if you try something different with it you know but interestingly with Sherlock we saw it really much more as a restoration and that was because well you know the initial idea came from the the coincidence of the fact that we were having another Afghan war and then the original story Dr Watson is wounded in Afghanistan and it was like this is that was how it started and then but what we, what Stephen and I wanted to do was go back to the stories and really get down to what it was, which is a sort of flat share. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a flat share comedy, and yeah. with adventure. And 
And it was amazing how many people to this day who think tons of what we put in was actually, uh, there was Conan Doyle and, and they thought it was just us sort of riffing on it. And you go, no, look, it's, it's all there. So I think sometimes this happens uh, that you, when, it, when a story is very familiar, people, there's a sort of echo of effect and they end up remaking the echo of the echo of the echo. Yeah, and then and then sometimes, which is what I'm doing with Christmas Carol at the moment on stage. If you go back to the source novel, you discover it's far more radical and startling than yeah. the version that maybe you you've seen on TV a hundred times, which has become a bit more chocolate boxy, you know. Completely, and I think we see that in the world of social media, or in the modern time of social media, is so many people have a vague knowledge of things because they've just we've caught it here or caught it there, mm. and don't actually know what's below the surface so i can yeah. completely see how you're going no this is i mean i, I appreciate you heaping praise on us but this was all in the book like, yeah 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 no, it, it was there you just didn't yeah. know that that's how it, yeah. it, it yeah. went so well let's uh, uh, talk about um the amazing mr blunden then because i sp- spoke earlier of peaky blinders affecting haircuts and men's fashion you've taken a book that was out of print for a good 30 years was kind of a, a hidden, a collector's um, mm. s- story as such. And now it's being re-released be- because of the, you know, in line with the film and everything. So how was it to approach this and what made you choose this as a story you wanted to to, to bring to life again? Well, the, the, it's, it's the film for me. You see, I, uh, I saw the original Lionel Jeffries film when I was about seven at school. It was the day right. we broke up for Christmas, and I remember it so vividly. And it had, it pressed all my buttons before I knew I had buttons to press, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's time travel, it's ghosts, it's funny, it's scary, it's very melancholy, and it's very moving. And it's, it's just, to me, the perfect sort of family uh, film. And... It was made very much as a sort of companion piece to the railway children, but it's just not as well known. Those who do know it adore it, and that's mm. why it's like a precious thing for a lot of people, uh, uh, including me. And then, so when I was approached with the idea of doing a new version, it initially felt heretical to me. But um, but I reread the book, which I hadn't read since I was a teenager. And the, the the thing that struck me most is that the family in it and the kids in it are from the present day. The book is set in the present day, and so going back in time 200 years had a much more of an impact than in the original film because it's uh, it's set in 1918 and this is it's a sort of double period movie you know yeah um but I, anyway the, the the original film it to me is is just utterly wonderful but i thought this story is really good and it needs to be represented to a new audience you know and that's i mean you'll get you'll get an audience hopefully on sky at christmas time who will not watch a 50 year old film and that's just how it is, you know. So once I decided it was worth doing, I, I approached it with great reverence, but also utter joy because it's a it's it's been a wonderful experience, and and really everything I hoped for. The kids were fantastic. Uh, the weather was amazing. We only had one COVID shutdown, amazing. and I think it's I think it's really good. It's 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 been lovely, a lovely thing. It's I think you're completely right there, but. Before I, I moved into acting, I did music, and there was always that thing: if you put a new album out, and there'd be a certain amount of people going, "I prefer the, I, I preferred the first album," and you kind of, I always wanted to say, "We didn't burn it over it." Like yeah. that still exists; it's still there. You've still got that. I've not <laughs> snuck in your house and replaced it with the new record. So yeah. again, I think that approach is far more positive. Of going right, well, I love the original. Now let's have a look at 
at this new version. I can only watch it so many times as well. What was it? Uh, Noel Coward said um, his his advice for life was work as hard as you can and don't pay any attention to what people say. And the yeah. truth is, it does. You just have to do what you have to do, and the the judgment of criticism or history will say what it likes. You know, uh, when we did the third series of the League of Gentlemen, we was very different. It was the sort of anthology one where it, it was a single episode and that mm. all every, the, the climax of each episode tied up into this big accident. You know? And at the time people hated it. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, right. They, they just couldn't bear the change. And it was like, well, we wanted to do something different. It was up to us. It was our show, you know? And now routinely people tell me it's their favorite one. I mean, it doesn't matter. I don't mind. It just takes, sometimes takes 15 years for people to make up their mind. But I find that very interesting. For it to click. Yeah, definitely. How did you find that period? Because the League of Gentlemen didn't feel as if it was written to be a mainstream <laughs> show. Because, you know, it's such a mix of comedy and horror and and, and, and strangeness. It f- f- felt like it was written by people who wanted to make this amazing thing but when something gets so big you then start to get that greater exposure and greater criticism i guess or you're under the microscope more so when you continue to do what you want to do yeah yeah it's like well that's not what we wanted so i'm sorry this isn't this is ours i don't think anyone ever sets out to be to be small you know we we just what, what we absolutely wanted to do was we just did our own thing and that's it just what it what was it was what made us laugh and then yeah. and then it did become very very popular and i don't i think you just again you just have to resist that sort of external pressure because i do remember there was a funny thing in the second series that there was sudden we got some money from america to co-produce it because they the first series had been an unexpected sort of hit on some cable channel and in the end it was just impossible to have anything to do with them because they were suddenly sending notes, you know, and the, and the, the right. point, the point of it was, it was, I remember one was like, um, what is a spot? Is it like a zit? <laughs> and they, I mean, it was just like impossible. It was like, well, everything you, whatever you liked about the series is not going to be helped along by, by trying to make it like anything else, you know? I mean, that's yeah. to this day, I think the, the point the, the league was not meant to be cozy. It's very, challenging and weird and yeah. I, sometimes i glance back at bits on the telly and it's i can't quite believe it, it we did it it's uh but you know that was that that was the point of it it wasn't meant to be a tuesday night sitcom in that sense you know? yeah well well how was that kind of complete parallel on something like the amazing mr blunder then because obviously you've you've acted in loads of, of of big things and written loads of big things but it this is certainly one of the biggest projects you've directed Right. So how was that bringing it all together and f- finding the the right tone and, and, and making it your own again, particularly with such a reverence to the original? Well, it is the biggest thing I've directed. Um, but I mean, I think the, the oldest advice always is, is the best, you know, you, what you do is you sur- surround yourself with the best possible team yeah. and uh, people who aren't out to get you is quite, <laughs> quite crucial. And, and have a good time. I mean, we, it was very hard work. It was a six week shoot. There's a massive fire at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never had enough time, but you know, between us, it was, it was a joyous thing. And, and I, th- I have to say, um, creatively seeing a project like that through from beginning to end is incredibly satisfying. I know it, that sounds like the sort of default thing that, that, um, 
directors say, or certainly actors turn directors, I would say, but it's very true. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's something about the holistic nature of it. If you know that the, 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 the whole, the whole thing is, is imprinted with what you want it to be. And you're not, sometimes I think as a writer that the, the nicest moment is, bef- is the moment before you press send. Yeah. Because, because as soon as it's out there, people make assumptions, they, they make mistakes and you go, no, no, how, oh, how could you not see that? You know, I, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Weirdly, um, on the league film, when the apocalypse is approaching, the uh, iconic image of the war memorial on Royston Vasey High Street holding the, uh, the the laurel wreath, yeah, and it's struck by lightning. And obviously, this is this this tells you something. Royston Vasey is under attack, so the the upstretched arm of the laurel wreath is obviously struck by lightning. Until we get there and discover that the other arm is the one that they've rigged to fall off, and you just go, "Are you fucking kidding?" Oh wow! Why? Why would you think it was this arm, the one yeah. that's tucked behind the back? You know, it's weird. So sometimes, but that—that's just what happens, as it were, in the fog of war. You know, you think you've agreed to these things in a dry room in Soho six months before, and then you turn up on set, and it's totally different. It's fascinating, isn't it? How much <laughs> is truly on the page and how much you assume is on the page because you yeah. know the characters and the yeah. story so yeah. well yeah you could have just kind of like all right i thought that was obvious but it was not you know as a as a reader yourself you you, you skip things you do it's yeah. inevitable i mean it, you just have to be very careful i learned a long time ago from russell t davis about the importance of of pagination and if you have a big block of exposition break it up for god's sake because yeah. people will not read it and that everyone is everyone is looking for an excuse to put that script down, yeah. And your job is to keep them reading. Whether and it's full of cheap tricks. Script writing is full of cheap tricks, cheap hooks yeah. to get to stop people from from looking out the window or checking their phone. Do, do you in, enjoy that part of the process? Then it really interested me saying that sometimes the best part is just before you press send. Because I've <laughs> yeah. had a thing where in lockdown I've got so many scripts kind of shorts and other bits worked on and now we're potentially seeing an end of it depending on how our government continue to mishandle it but i'm starting to go oh am i gonna actually have to have to make some of these like i i I love them i I love what's happened i've I've kind of got comfortable with the just them being in my world only so yeah do you enjoy that part of the process of course yeah i mean it is it can be difficult i tell you what i always find fascinating and it always happens is that as soon as you start making something, it overwrites the version you've had in your head. Yeah. It's true that I can't, I, it's all running. It's like the film is running in your head. And then suddenly that scene is shot and it's no longer that scene. It becomes its own thing. Sometimes yeah. it's very, very close, which is obviously nice, but that's a curious thing. But um, I suppose in the end, that's the difference between doing it, as it were, for a living and facing up to the realities of compromise yeah, and the sort of, I suppose, the sort of bedroom producer uh, version of, of of yourself, which is like, this is perfect and no one must touch it. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I, I've lost count of the amount of people I've met over the years, mostly young, I have to say, who, who believe they have written this 28-part work of science fiction majesty which can which can actually never be made because it would just be spoiled and you just go well or or, or would you like it to be made yeah <laughs> you yeah. know and and i think what happens with really with people who just get on with it is is that you 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 learn from 
other people about the importance of compromise and also the kind of fun of it really you know when you're when you're faced with Im- impossible schedules and um and you have to m- make something up on the hoof that can be terribly exciting i think you you know when you suddenly have to change your mind about something that you wrote maybe 2 years ago and you go actually i'm going to have to rewrite this on the spot we did that once in sherlock it was a scene with a with a a bloodhound and it, the, the bloodhound is in Conan Doyle. It's, it's called Toby. It's got the best nose in London. And we, we put it in as a little tribute, you know. Now, my dog would have followed any food to the end of the earth and be brilliant. This blood, this bloodhound would not move. Right. And That's not ideal, particularly we, for a bloodhound. It blood just <laughs> wouldn't move. And we eventually, Stephen and I literally sat on the pavement and rewrote this scene wow. so that it was about the fact that the bloodhound was actually useless. You know, and that was not our intention, but there was yeah. nothing else we could do. I love that. I, I got advice once off, off Jimmy Iovine because he's, so, he's someone who struck me in the music industry, he just seemed to move from so many different things and change his direction so often. And he just said, cast your life carefully because if you surround yourself, as you, you touched upon earlier, if you surround yourself with the right people, you don't mind notes and criticism and advice because yeah. you yeah. respect them. So, yeah. so it's kind of it's not that scary thing of. But this is my baby. I don't want anyone to touch it. It's like, no. oh, I want Stephen's input, for example, or, or this person's input, or or whomever else. Absolutely, and that that's why you you know no no one resents notes from people they respect. What yeah. what you what you get cross about and crotchety about is is when you think this this person doesn't know anything or. All right, you know. They don't know what a spot is. Yeah, <laughs> say. So. Um, well, you've, I mean, obviously you've spoken about the excitement of having that kind of complete control almost. There's also a pressure in that. As an actor, as you touched upon, you can kind of come and do your bit and then leave. If it turns out it's rubbish, it wasn't my fault. There's so many moving <laughs> parts. Or even as a writer, if you're handing it over, if you're not show running, there's an element of, well, I did my bit. I did my job. It's it's yeah. on to them now. If it doesn't work, it's kind of there's there's a level of deniability, I guess, as the writer and director, and you know, if you're producing or in it as well, there's not really anyone else that you can <laughs> can blame anything on. So how was that as as pressure as you're as you're making this? Uh, well, I, I mean, yes, there is always pressure. Of course, there is because you want people to like it. You just have to. I guess you just have to feel. I think if you're if you're happy that you've done the best you can, then all you're doing is saying, "Well, here it is." I mean, and again, without, I suppose there's the usual thing is that it, it's it's when you're spending other people's money, uh, <laughs> the the pressure mounts exponentially. I imagine what it must be like to open to direct, say, uh, a, a a big big movie, and then for it to not to to do well, that must be pretty grim and yeah. especially in that environment a friend of mine who's a film director he did a movie which was an unexpected success and did a quick follow-up and the film didn't do well and he he literally this is absolutely true he was staying in the beverly hilton in la uh he went to an out-of-town preview of his new film and when he came back to the hotel he'd been moved into a smaller hotel Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, it's so brutal. Literally, in the car journey on the way back, they downsized him because he was no longer the the man of the moment. 
Oh man, that's horrific. <laughs> so yeah, it must be yeah. There's there, there's levels of pressure, I guess. Yeah, in yeah, these yeah. Things, but you know, you take obviously you you take it very seriously and also shoulder that responsibility. But also, it's a the joy of it is in the idea of a of a vision being seen through from beginning to end. And and yeah. if you're if you're, I mean, Sky have been absolutely brilliant on Mister Blunden. So so little. Um, external pressure or, or notes or it, they were just wonderful really i mean in, in a very old-fashioned way sort of saying well we trust you and uh that that's been really fantastic i have to say and incredibly helpful because you don't feel that you're you're compromising the the sort of tone uh, and the flavor of the thing at all you you want to um you want to feel like it's definitely your baby yeah yeah i mean uh- I'm 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 always kind of l- loath to talk about how was it working with this person or that person because I don't think there's ever been you know a junket style interview where someone's gone oh no they were an absolute n- nightmare I hate them it was everyone was always a joy to work with <laughs> but working with children young actors a heightened pressure environment because of making anything during a pandemic is tough how was that for you as 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 the director to to work with i guess i was going to say two, two young leads kind of four young leads um how was that and, and and did you find you had to adjust anything or 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 learn any specific ways to to make it all flow nicely well i said from the beginning you know this film stands or falls on the children because it's their film and they're in it an awful lot so we we had to find really good kids and we did and they're all with the exception of Xavier Wilkins who plays Georgie who's 10 but is actually old beyond his years anyway the rest of them are a little older than they're playing yeah uh, and that was a huge help but the, what I wanted to do and learning from Lionel Jeffrey's film was was sort of make it well make it a happy experience I suppose you know was, um, and they've all they had a they had a wonderful time I mean just it was just gorgeous to see them together and just having fun you know and sometimes you you look over and you feel so old as you think well, jesus christ you could run a town on their energy i don't know how yeah. where it, they're just yeah. like blah, 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 blah. they're like mad children they're just mad uh but they were having such a great time and so i wanted to make sure it was that the overarching feel was fun and that you know they 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 had to knuckle down and work hard, but they, they should be enjoying themselves and look back on it with great fondness, which I think they definitely will. I was talking to India Fowler, who plays Sarah at the premiere last week at the BFI, and she said, "I'll never, I'll never forget this." It, it was, and it was, I was terribly moved. She was, it was just lovely. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's crucial, and also a lot of people have said how how calm I always seemed, and I, and I suppose. There's a slight sense of you, you have to perform as a director as well. You, you, mm. I think, and yeah. uh, that's that can be quite draining because if it's things are going wrong or you're under pressure. But I think there's no point in screaming and shouting. Nobody benefits from it. And also, but that is a huge part of that is down to trust. You know, because my producers were dealing with really difficult stuff behind the scenes about budget and everything, and. Uh, David Higgs, my DOP, who was a, a miracle worker, uh, every day he would say at the end of the day, I'm sorry. And I'd, I'd go, but it's incredible, David. It was, and it looks so beautiful, but 
you know, he felt sad that he couldn't give me more, et cetera, et cetera. But he, you know, saved my bacon every day. And I think if you have trust in your team, then you're able to, you know, to, to as it were, lead the company uh, in, in a kind of open and, and warm way because that's what everybody wants to do. I mean, there's such a, there's an ancient lie about you can only do something good if you're having a miserable time. Yeah. And I know quite a lot of directors and producers and some actors who definitely believe that and make people's lives miserable. And you just think, what on earth is the point of that? Life's too short. I mean, if you're not having a good time, then why are you bothering to do it? I completely agree. And it it wasn't until I kind of started, um, I moved into acting and, and that, that I kind of saw that, oh, I now understand why certain people always work together like repeatedly over the years it's because they're nice to be around and they enjoy being on set together and if you're going to commit six weeks six months a year whatever it is of your life you should be going there and enjoying it or you should be hoping to go and have it feel fulfilling and as you said with your uh one of you you're a young cast. I'm going to always remember this. You don't want to be remembering it for the wrong reasons. But I, you know, exactly that. I remember watching films with my dad and West, he loved Westerns. And I remember even as a very small child, realizing that John Ford always had the same people in his movies, not just yeah. John Wayne. Yeah. They, yeah. They, yeah. All the old timers. And it was like, oh, it's him. I know that face. And, you know, it's obvious what happens that over a period of years, they just go, oh, he can do that. He's brilliant. And, and and everyone, I think, ends up doing the same thing. I certainly have. You, It's great, obviously, to meet and work with new people. And But you, the, the good ones, you keep for, for all the right reasons. You know? Yeah. And, and, and an awful lot of that, as well as their innate talent, is because because they you know that they will join together to make the, the project better. Yeah. Completely. In in my still v- v- very n- new career, there's a couple of people I've worked with t- two or three times already. And I know it's because I'm not going to annoy them. <laughs> like, yeah. like, obviously, I like to think there's an element of, 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 of performance and whatever else involved. But I know part of it is that I enjoy being on set. I'm really, yeah. I'm still a massive nerd for all of this. So, so I'm going to have the excitement of those kids. Um, <laughs> but as a, as a grown hairy man. So <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about was the decision making and pressure on doing a, a modern version again of an older film w- w- that will have some kind of after effects. And we, we we live in a time where you can do so much after the shoot that people often don't want to do much in camera, live effects and things like that. So how was that kind of finding the balance and deciding how you wanted to approach this? Because it is a, a supernatural story as, as such. So there's going to be after effects and tricks. So how was that to find the the right balance there? Well, I'm a I'm a big fan of in camera effects, mm. and so the the fire. The fire is largely real, amazing, um, uh, which was very challenging, but also incredible because it changes everything. You know, the people act differently in front of real flames. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, that was kind of thrilling, but inevitably, you, you, you know, you know, and at the end, Mr. Blunden parts the fire like the Red Sea. So that that's all effect. So, mm. but largely, I wanted it to keep it real. And actually, it's interesting what happens that without being Luddite about it, you know, the, the simpler things are, the more effective they can be. So when the children appear and disappear, 
uh, I wanted to give it something that meant it wasn't just, you know, they just literally step out of shot or something like yeah. that. But I've kept it very subtle. It's very smoky. Yeah. They just kind of dissolve. And there's a, and Mr. Blunden himself, you never see him appear or disappear. He's always there and then he's not there. Yeah. And I rather like that. There's something really effective about just the app. You know, it's just, it's just sort of how you imagine a ghost might be. You just go, oh, look. And then you look away and they're gone. So, um, I I'm not a Luddite at all. I just, uh, I just think it's sometimes to know that actually ha that happened in front of your eyes is, is rather appealing. And also it stops it dating. I mean, um, I was watching, um, Alien 3, which is a very underrated film. But the, the CGI is just unwatchable. Yeah. And, and the idea that, that that was once a man in a suit in the original Alien and the, and the sequel and is now was made into this CG thing, which with, you know, 25 years later looks like, like a Nintendo. Yeah. From yeah. the, from 1993. Yeah. It's, it, it ruins it. And you think, well, you wouldn't, you, you don't ever get that feeling watching Jason and the Argonauts, do you? No, no, exactly. But I, I, I love that idea of using the kind of the appearance happened in the moment you looked away as as such. In my in my youth of of experimenting with mind altering drugs, um, anything hallucinogenic, I learned quite quickly that you can have a lot more fun if you you let things happen in your kind of peripheral vision. If you turn around and look, it's you you you're back to reality. If you allow the peripherals to 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 then they can go on all sorts of adventures and it feels like a similar thing there. I can completely relate to that on like, ghostly about, things. That... About your experience. <laughs> but but yeah. there's a, there's a brilliant bit in um actually one of my references was in the film Hereditary. Yeah. Um there's a my favorite bit actually apart from when the little girl gets her head knocked off. Uh, is is when Tony Collette is going through her mother's things in that room, and she just sees she sees her in the shadows, mm. and it's just it's so creepy because yeah. she's just like made of bits of particulate. She's there and she's not there, and then she switches the light on and there's nothing there. It's really really creepy, I think, because it's not showy, you know. Yeah, are you are you a big fan of 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 of, of modern? cinema then again a, a lot of the stuff that you've approached yourself to recreate are from from older um pieces of work um but yeah things like hereditary are, are you a fan of a lot of the the new schools of horror and of oh yeah of cinema in general but i mean as to quote sherlock holmes there is nothing new under the sun yeah and what you are what you're looking at always is a reinvention really everything is because because there's only a few stories to tell and horror particularly it goes through cycles and then you find you know i've said this many times before but i i feel a bit like a like a junkie constantly in search of their first hit because yeah. because people go oh god this this they said it about hereditary they oh god it's like the new exorcist it's terrifying and and i i enjoyed it i thought it was a bit daft and it gets very daft but there's lots to enjoy, but I, I never seem to find the one that is like, oh my god! Uh, the last film that did that to me was probably The Ring, yeah, because it really—it was so—it felt so new, you know, yeah. Uh, and also a very good film called Under the Shadow. Have you seen that? Yes, um, I love yeah. that movie. And the thing about that, which was so fascinating, was that it was a—it was actually a, a traditional ghost story, but it was set in Tehran in 1980, and you go. 
I've never seen anything like this before. And suddenly yeah. the whole thing kind of comes up fresh again, you know? So that's what I like is when you find something unexpected or someone rings the changes on an old format like that. But it's sometimes literally just the geography of it yeah. is, makes it new. I posted about that oh. at, at that film, very excited. And the director hit me up. I assumed obscure foreign film, blah, blah, blah. He used to be a cameraman at MTV and he, 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 he filmed one of my gigs once and was like, all oh, right, yeah, we filmed you at this. I was like, man, that's blown my mind. Because, again, I hadn't really looked into it. But because, yeah. I said, the simple thing of moving the horror genre out of England or America or, yeah. or these things is so enriching. Yeah. Well, when I did, I don't know if you've seen, I, I did a, 10 years ago, I did a three-part series about horror movies. Yes. Uh, his, history of horror and then one about European horror. And we always wanted to do one about the rest of the world because that is so interesting. Is yeah. There are certain countries where horror films have never really caught on. And that's yeah. very interesting. I remember G- um, Girl Walks Home Alone at, at Night was yeah, just one that, yeah, yeah. again, it was just so... Yeah. The simplicity of it not being f- f- familiar yeah. added a level of edge to the horror totally. and that, nature that's, of it. Uh, that sort of arid Arab landscape. Yeah. And... and, and it was just totally different. And that's, I think people could really learn an awful lot from that. Just, especially uh, if you're making a horror film that you, if you just think about bringing the changes and relocating, you could, mm. you could come up with something genuinely. The guy who did uh, the others, that script, he, he did Vanilla Sky. Yeah. Or, or the original Vanilla Sky, whatever it was called. And Tom Cruise said, have you got anything else? And he went, Yes. And he had this script set in Spain and overnight, I believe it's true, overnight he relocated it to Jersey, made everyone English, oh, wow. <laughs> brought it in and Tom and Nicole optioned it the next day. You know, that's very clever, that is. <laughs> yeah, it is. And well, I mean, you spoke about kind of always hunting f- for that first um, shock or fear moment or that originality. Can we talk a little bit about Dracula? Because that was kind of the start of... Of, of the horror genre in, in, in many ways as the Bram Stokers. How was that to take on? Um, and how was it again to take it on a journey to the modern, the modern day? Cause that's what blew my mind about it was just how seamlessly and, and, and wonderfully and unexpectedly it took those turns and, and took those jumps and movements to go, here we are now without it feeling like, and I always worry when there's like a, come and see the hip-hop Shakespeare. It's like, oh, nah, yeah, let's not. Yeah. Let's not come and see the hip-hop Shakespeare. Let's... Or indeed one of my favourite films, which was Dracula AD 1972. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But, well, it was, it was, it. you know, we thought we we had an opportunity to do something rather exciting, which was sort of make the first one, like, almost like the most concentrated Dracula that ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely from the first third of the book, which is the best bit and is real, a real page turner, which is Harker trapped in the castle. And then I'd always thought that the, 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 the ship's journey to England is one of the most exciting bits of the book and, and is never done. And it's such a clever idea because it's told in the form of a captain's log. And it's such a great idea. And I thought, well, yeah. we thought if we expanded that, we could maybe do the whole thing on the boat. And then it's like, you know, death on the Nile with Dracula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, completely. and then we thought, um, well, and then what if, you know, what if 
there's a twist that he that we see the coffin sink to the bottom of the sea, but we don't know how long it's been there. And then when he comes, he finally gets to Whitby. It's actually the present day, and so yeah. it fell quite naturally into three sections. And again, it's about tackling that novel and doing doing all your favourite bits, as it were, but equally trying to do something new with it. So, for instance, that on on the Demeter on the ship when when Dracula turns up for dinner with Catherine Shell. I literally wrote, he's dressed as the, in the full Lugosi. Because it's like, well, what chance? We never get this chance anymore. But he's, yeah. actually, he's actually a European nobleman dressing for dinner. So yeah. he, has a white, he has white tie and a little medallion like yeah. Lugosi. It was irresistible. But then equally, I was excited by the idea of the Lucy story, which is, of course, very gothic, mm-hmm. being in a sort of much more modern rather grim setting so it's about crematoria and and people and a, and a big modern graveyard not not about the gothic trappings so it's you know you you have all the fun i all the fun of the fair but equally you can have fun and excitement from ringing the changes as i say again and trying something different interesting i i, I love that well i mean i also want to know how was it when you found your count as such mm. in Klaus Band, because I thought his turn was amazing. I loved him in the square and in in mm. in the bridge and things like that. But I wouldn't have predicted him at all as 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 Dracula. And then just yeah, I thought he was amazing. How was that moment of going? Yep, I think we've <laughs> I think we've got it. Well, it happens occasionally when you kind of you look. It happened with Andrew Scott on on Sherlock when you yeah. just kind of go, oh hello, this is yeah. something else. Place <laughs> yeah. was. Um, We'd, uh, our casting director, Kate Rose James, we had, it, well, we said, we don't want, we don't want anyone British. We, we want the impossible, which is, which is someone in their forties or fifties who's a, not a star, but is Dracula. And, and is really she, good. Is yeah. That, all right. And, and there was a no short problem. list and she ringed <laughs> Clay's name and said, I think he's well worth looking at. And she's, then we watched the square. Yeah. And you just go, oh my God, it, look, it's Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's Dracula slash James Bond. And yeah. so that's how it happened. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a very, it's very interesting process that because luckily there was no pressure to try and get a name, which, you know, would have, would have changed the whole thing. You, you, you get, um, you get a sort of people obviously bring baggage, don't they bring baggage to it? Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if say, you know, if Benedict had, had played Dracula as well as Sherlock, it would be, well, he's, it's, it's not the same. So yeah. there was something yeah. wonderful about that. And also because one of our favorite versions is the, uh, the Louis Jordan version from 77. And, you know, Louis Jordan is definitely French. He's not Romanian. He's not yeah. Hungarian. Yeah. But what he, what he is, is other. And Clace has a very similar thing. He's, you can't really work out where he's from. He has this extraordinary face, which is very much not an English face. Mm-hmm. And, and he brings all that with him. You just, you sort of believe that if, if, if you went to Transylvania now, you, you could easily uh, find that he was living in a castle and it would all just happen again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah completely. So I, I guess as we start to wrap things up, what is, is left from your youth to, 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 to choose to take because I, I know you loved Sherlock and 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 you loved Doctor Who and 
Mr. Blunden, of course, and and horrors, which I'm sure Dracula played a big part in your mm. in your love of horror. What is 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 there anything else that kind of sits there as still a there's that one thing I would love to to get my teeth into? I don't know. It's I mean the the trouble is uh, I it, it may look like it, but I'm not set on remaking everything from my childhood. It's uh, at all. It's just the way it's fallen, and also mm. also the truth is it's very hard to get things commissioned and inevitably if something has an existing ip it, it it makes people sit up you know when we pitched dracula to various american networks absolutely every single one of them perked up when we got to the end of episode 2 and said the sound of helicopters because what they were interested yeah. in was like oh that feels different you know yeah. so um it's not it's not like a checklist of things to go through at all, but it just it sort of just depends where what 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 might come up, I suppose. For instance, I've just done another MR James for Christmas, which is a, a dream come true. But I I it's it's a story that hasn't been done before. And to me it's very important right. to try and keep that strand alive by doing new stories and other writers and and, and also things that aren't as familiar, you know. So it's it's really a battle between trying to get things off the ground which are less familiar. And then sometimes people going, well, would you ha- like to have a go at this, etc. Having yeah. said all that, it's obviously James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I mean, we started this conversation off about how hard it can be at times kind of to be, pr- at the moment, to be proud of of being English or British. And it's occurred to me that where we can continually f- find that pride because because repeatedly the more i learn about history the more the stuff i was taught at school to be proud of isn't anything to be proud of either it's Mm. it's a history of pillaging and (laughs) and ransacking but what we can seem to continue to be proud of is our art you know bram stoker was irish arthur conan doss scottish and so many amazing english writers and welsh so do you enjoy that element of kind of of of, of reveling in Britishness as such? Of course. And what I was trying to say in that interview really was that the thing is, it's always complicated. It's what Alan Bennett talks about. You know, what he he cries when he hears Jerusalem, but sort of despises what it stands for, and that's the problem with being British. And also, the reason I said about it. But it's difficult to be English. Is is it's? I think what we're living through is a British is an English problem. It's not a yeah. British problem. It's specifically an English disease yeah. Yeah. we are living with. It's a, it's a, a sort of horrifying nationalism and a, and a, and an unwillingness to be told what to do, which is not to do with sort of good old fashioned common sense. It's just to do with bloody mindedness. You know, people. I was talking to someone the other day who'd had a row with a relative of theirs who's Botox to the hilt. And, and he'd said to them, you know, why, why are you willing to put the, what is literally the most poisonous substance on earth into your face, but you won't have a jab because you think Bill Gates is piloting a miniature submarine around your bloodstream? What yeah. the hell has yeah. happened in the last two years to your mind? You know, people have gone nuts. So I am very proud of British art and what we are all capable of. It's just at the moment we're in a very sticky situation with the whole thing. Well, with <laughs> with your general creativity or your main creativity being your work as well and with the real world being a fucking mess 
Um, do you enjoy the restful creativity of of your painting? I, I really enjoy when you t- you tweet out any of your mm. your art and, and paintings. Is that is that a good way to to switch off f- from it all as such? Yes, it is very much. I mean, you know, I just I like uh, I, I only took it up again properly about three or four years ago, and it's it, I'm so glad it saved my mental health during lockdown. Yeah. Uh, because it's like make you get the end of the day and go, oh, I've made something. It's really good for you, head. Yeah. And so, and also, I just love learning. I love learning in a way that I didn't when I was at school. All I wanted to do was leave school. I just wanted to get out there and do stuff. But uh, I, I, I love like trying to get better and just learning stuff online or on classes or whatever. Just like teach me how to do this. It's really exciting, I think. Uh, but it is, it is, it's a creative act that is different because it's, it's less pressure, but also it's not your main thing. I mean, I suppose everybody needs a hobby. I think it's really good for you because you, you approach it in a different way. It's obviously channeling the same sort of creative urges, yeah. but it's not, it's not your job. Yeah. And therefore, you know, sometimes when, I really would like to paint more than do anything else. I have to think, no, this isn't my job. Therefore, I have to do my job. <laughs> yeah. And it's 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 creativity for the, for its own sake as well, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. is a really weird thing in this industry. I had a couple of, of short scripts recently that had got a fair bit of attention, but every production company I spoke to were like, so it, could this be turned into a feature or could this be a series? Is that, no, that is... That is the art. It's a short. Mm. Sadly, that the, the, there's no marketability in that. No, but no, that's I've got I've, I've got other features I want to do. Mm. But this is a short. It's its own thing, and that seemed yeah, like such yeah, a yeah. hard concept because of the industry. Because it has to be a where's it leading? Jer- Jeremy Dyson and I once pitched uh, to some big film executives with this idea we'd have forever, which was called the Final Voyage of Sinbad, mm-hmm. and it was a really lovely idea in which you'd have a a kind of Connery-like elderly Sinbad, but, you know, yeah. everyone was invested in this figure, but he, he's a, he's a, he, everyone thinks he's dead. He's a legendary figure. And then he's found, or someone, a young sailor finds him and he's a monk, and but he has no soul. Uh, and and it was taken from him by a, by a, by a wicked magician years before. And so this young sailor reunites Sinbad's, old crew for one last mission and they've got seven moons to get Sinbad's soul back to my I, I think that's what it is. Anyway, it was, we worked on it for ages. It was really lovely. We pitched it. And by the time we came out of the meeting, we had committed to a three series franchise about young Sinbad. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm sure that wasn't what we went. Yeah. It never happened, but that was the point. It was a valedictory story. It was the one last time. It's 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 like the Magnificent Seven. It's yeah. it's old men on a mission, and suddenly it was about a 21 year old Sinbad realizing you're <laughs> going left. into a big exec. Yeah. You are pitching a franchise. It's just yeah. the last film in a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as we wrap oh, things up. What's ahead, I guess? Is there anything that you can talk about or anything that, you know, I think a lot of people, particularly in an industry that often refuses to acknowledge the idea of time off or family or pausing, I think the pandemic has made a lot of people kind of readjust what they want to focus their efforts onto and their time. So, yeah, what's ahead, I guess? Well, I'm exactly the same, but I've weirdly, I've had a crazily busy year. I mean, after last year, this year has been nuts. 
partly because um, of things which were supposed to be last year moving to this year. But yeah, um, I finished Christmas Carol on January the 9th. Uh, and then I've got, I do have a bit of time off. Uh, I, I'm writing a big thing, um, which is ongoing. And, but the next big thing I've got is I'm directing Stephen Moffat's first play at Chichester. Oh, wow. Uh, in, in May, uh, which is called The Unfriend. And, uh, that's, that's, that was meant to happen two years ago. So it's, uh, that's been postponed twice. So, um, I'm, I'm just living, I'm living in the past. <laughs> I tried to try desperately <laughs> to get past all these old projects. Yeah, but I'm very excited about it. It's a very, very funny play. Very funny. I love that. Well, yeah, I look forward to it. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Grievous. Bless you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Mark Gatiss. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I mean, he's we've discussed a lot of stuff there. He's given you a lot of stuff to watch and enjoy. So um, I hope you do a lot of that over the Christmas period. I'll be back on Friday with a bonus episode. As I've said before... Every week in December, I'm doing two podcasts for you lot because I know a lot of people are stopping their podcasts as we get to this period. So I thought I'd fill that gap if you need it filling. So until next week, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. Not not next week, Friday. Uh, Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,